Welcome to Bible Worm. We're on hiatus until September 2021, but this summer we'll be replaying our 2020 series on the Hebrew Festival Scrolls. This week, enjoy our episode on Ecclesiastes 1 and 8 from May 31st, 2020. Happy listening, and see you in September. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Hello and welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. I'm joined this and every week by my friend and colleague, Dr. Amy Robertson, biblical scholar and executive director of Congregation Beit Haverim, a synagogue in Atlanta. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we begin our summer series on the Hebrew Festival Scrolls with a look at Ecclesiastes 1, 1 1-3 and 8, 16-9-10. We discuss Kohelet's idea that everything is mere breath and ask what it means to live in a world where nothing adds up to much of anything. We talk about the inscrutability of God and why good people often suffer while the wicked get all the rewards. We ask whether it's possible to accomplish anything meaningful in life and, if not, how we might be better off to reorient our goals to enjoy the moments of each day whether playing with a toddler or listening to the birds sing. Also, Amy asked what kind of person would use Ecclesiastes as a wedding text. It's me. I did it. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am doing fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Have you sort of settled into the routine of pandemic life? I'm just completely disoriented, so there's a certain, this is a very Kohelity thing to say, actually. There's a certain freedom that comes when you just give up on (laughs) (laughs) being oriented towards any type of reality. Yeah, you just um, live the moment that you have in front of you, yeah. That's all we got. I have a question for you, Bobby. Yeah. When we were reading that passage from 1 Corinthians about love, you talked about how it's read often at weddings and like, that's fine, but... You didn't you didn't super love that. Like that's sort of a not a full reading of the text. So yeah. I was gonna ask you, is there another text that you think should be read at weddings? <laughs> well <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so you know it because you are the one who read it at my we- actual wedding that this passage that we're discussing today in Ecclesiastes nine, seven to ten. Who is- reads this at a wedding? Bobby <laughs> Williamson does. That's yeah. right, folks. He's a romantic. Yeah, it was read. You read it in Hebrew and in English at my wedding, and uh-huh. so we mentioned both the pointlessness of life and the inevitability of death. Uh, and I think there was a phrase that your hoary head goes down to Sheol or something like that. <laughs> I just like that. I like that. It's it's very it's romantic. I have often said of my dear spouse that, you know, when you marry a Hebrew Bible scholar, you sort of like, <laughs> you have to have a certain <laughs> you know what you're signing up sense for. <laughs> of humor or like flexibility about things. Yeah. And so um, this passage that we're reading today is, uh, and actually, and we can talk about it more when we get there, but it really yeah, we is will, we will. kind of a beautiful, like, I think a really appropriate passage for not only for a wedding ceremony, but just for the living of life in yeah. general, maybe in kind yeah. in somewhat depressing ways, actually, but. <laughs> but really, but, but well, I mean, yeah, we'll get into it, but really real ways. But I think it's, um, I think that's not what people expect from this, this passage and maybe from a wedding ceremony. So I am excited to bring that perspective and sort of lived experience of this text yeah. to Bible Worm. 
So this week on Bible Warren begins our next sort of 10-week series. We've moved away from the narrative lectionary. Well, the narrative lectionary ended for the year. And so we have moved off into now our own little summer series on the five festival scrolls, the Megilot, starting with Ecclesiastes for this week and next, and then Lamentation, Song of Songs, Ruth and Esther. And for people who might be interested, I have a little book on these texts called The Forgotten Books of the Bible, Recovering the Five Scrolls for Today, which gives some of my thoughts on this text. But we're not really using that book in this conversation in any direct way. We're just going to talk about these texts and see where it goes. Yeah, it's our, it's our, our very own vacation Bible school. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just so people are aware, when, we, when I published the readings for the summer series, there was a typo in this first uh, line originally. It's been corrected now, but if you're looking for the correct text, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verses 1 to 3, and then 8, 16 through 9, 10. We are moving back from the New Testament into the Hebrew Scriptures, into the book of Ecclesiastes in Hebrew, Kohelet, which is also what it's called in Jewish tradition. Is that right? It is, yes, it's called Kohelet, although strangely to me, in the Jewish study Bible, they call it Ecclesiastes also. It's just a, a Greek-Hebrew thing, right? Kohelet in Hebrew is translated into Ecclesiastes in the Septuagint. So what do you think we need to know as we start into the book of Ecclesiastes? What kind of background do we need before we get to actual texts? So Kohelet is considered part of wisdom literature within the Hebrew Bible, which is like texts that reflect on the nature of the world and the nature of God and the role of humans in this whole system that, that God has created. So Kohelet is alongside Proverbs and Job in this way. The book is often attributed to Solomon, mm -hmm. but if you actually look at the the likely dating of this text based on the language, yeah, probably was not, this will be shocking, it probably was not written by Solomon. Yeah, most scholars that I'm familiar with would argue that this book is early 3rd century, so okay. you often hear the date 280. Mm -hmm. Other scholars see how um, kind of famously among them place it back in the Persian period, so maybe in the 5th century. One thing that might be relevant about that is that once we get into the Persian and Greek periods, we get into a period of rapid sort of internationalization. And so the kind of way of life that kind of functioned in the monarchical period kind of falls apart. And so I think, that you, I think you see these, especially Ecclesiastes, struggling with like the rules we used to live by mm -hmm. no longer seem to get us where we want to go. So mm -hmm. what do we do with that? seems to be part of what this book is struggling with. Seems like a perpetually relevant question. Right? It does. <laughs> yeah. I want to say one more thing. The the rabbis were pretty uncomfortable with Kohelet. Yeah. Kohelet really, you know, says that that some of the the wisdom we have from Proverbs and some of the the way the world is supposed to work according to like Deuteronomy, the reward and punishment scheme that's sort of laid out that if you behave in a certain way this is what your life is going to look like yeah. Kohelet really says i don't think so mm -hmm. <laughs> really tears that down and so the rabbis say that this text while it is there's no doubt that it is included in the jewish canon the rabbis sort of wish it weren't <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it, it makes them uncomfortable it makes a lot of people uncomfortable i mean one of the things that's interesting is well why would people be uncomfortable with this book? And if we can like get past that discomfort, like what what does it say to us that's that's important mm -hmm. that we might not have access to in our in our traditions? 
So the set of texts that we have come up with is one, one to three, which is just kind of the introduction of the book, and then eight, sixteen to nine, ten, which is sort of kind of one way of thinking about a summary passage in the book, although one could come up with all kinds of others. So we'll just start with that one, one to three. I'm reading in the New Revised Standard Version this week. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? Okay, so three short little verses by way of introduction, but there's a lot going on just in those Mm -hmm. three verses. Where would you start us out as something that's important to dig into? I would love to spend a minute on this son of David, king in Jerusalem. Yeah. Why this would, why it seems to be referring to Solomon. Yeah. Even if it looks like from the date to the text, it is probably not. Yeah. And if it's trying to get us to think Solomon, why doesn't it just use Solomon's name? Like it's, right. it is right. refusing Solomon's name here, but it's clearly gesturing toward him anyway. I mean, I guess the somewhat straightforward answer that pops in my head is Solomon is, is known for his wisdom. Yeah. And I mean, Solomon is sort of like the paradigmatic example of someone who seemed to have everything a person could want on earth, right? He has tremendous power. He's the king. He has many wives. He has all this wealth. So for Solomon to be struggling with what's the point of all this is different than someone who, who had a harder lot in life. Yeah, I think all that is exactly right. The the word there, the words of the teacher, that's the word Kohelet in Hebrew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he uses that name instead of saying, I'm Solomon, I think is really important for the reasons that you suggest. His point is, no matter what I do in life, as we'll see, I'm going to be forgotten. And so he thinks, well, okay, yeah, but I'm just a, like a regular, you know, college professor or whatever. Of course, I'm going to be forgotten. But what if I was the king? Would I still be forgotten? And by erasing Solomon's name from the text, he says even somebody as great as Solomon, like their name, their name is going to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. And verse two, so in the NRSV and many translations, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And which doesn't mean vanity in the sense of like, you know, you're like gazing in the mirror all the time or you think this podcast is about you, don't you? Um, but it's vanity in the sense of like pointless the ceb's translation is actually pointlessness the hebrew word that's underlying that is hevel which is like a breath or a mist and i just think that's kind of an interesting metaphor to ponder for a second like what does it even mean to say everything is a mist it makes me think of everything having a sort of ephemeral yeah you know temporary quality Air can't like build on itself. Like you're not, you're not building anything. You're not, you know, like everything is temporary and nothing really attaches to anything else. It's just, I don't know. What, what, what does that bring up for you? The kind of image in my head is like, if you're outside on a, you know, a January evening and you breathe out, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. and that mist forms in front of your mouth and like, it's there, like you can see it. But you can't grab it. You can't touch it. You can't put it in your pocket. You can't pocket. manipulate it. You can't manipulate like you can't, it. You yeah. can't build on it. You can't save it for tomorrow. Yeah. And so then he's saying that's what everything, this is sort of his thesis statement for the book. And he repeats yeah. some version of this 30 something times in the book. And to say everything is like that air that you breathe out, you know, on a cold evening. That's a pretty, pretty stark way to, of starting a conversation. Part of me when I was when I was reading this over last night, 
I actually wrote down like, well, how bad is that? And I mm. guess that's a that's a question to sort of get into. It's yeah. not like he's saying everything is terrible. Yeah. He's saying everything is like air. Yeah. So it's really, it's striking and it's reorienting. Yeah. And it really changes sort of the question. Like, what is it you think you're, what do we think we're doing? Verse three then is the question that's kind of motivating that response, I think. And this sort of, he plays around with this idea through the book, but it shows up over and over again. And the question is, what do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? How do you read his question in verse three? So the the JPS translation is what real value is there yeah. for a man. So again, sort of thinking about what what counts as valuable, what counts as as worthwhile and yeah. important. I think I read this as just sort of there's no progress. Like you're not progressing towards anything. Yeah. And any progress that you think you've gained during life doesn't matter at the end of this game anyway. Yeah. So if what we mean by value, if what makes something worthwhile, worthwhile is that it's progressing towards something else, yeah. then there's no value. Yeah. Is that how you read that? It is, yeah. The, um, the Hebrew that's there is yitron, which is a, a word that's borrowed from Persian economic language. Mm. And it means, it means profit. Mm-hmm. The image that I have in my mind is like, it's the balance sheet of your life. The end, your death is the end of the fiscal year of your life. And the question is, <laughs> what have you taken in? And you're in? on a cash budget, so <laughs> you starting over. Yeah, you balance ex- you ba- expenses versus income, and you say, what's left at the end? And Kohelet's response is zero. Like, you have taken in exactly what you have expended, and there's nothing left at the end of the year. Yeah. So one way of translating that in my mind is to, is the question like, what has my life added up to? And so related, very much related to what you were saying about, does it build toward anything? If you think about it in terms of life, like when you get to the end of your life or when you get to your middle age or whatever it is, and you say, what profit has my life had so far? What has my life added up to? I think that's one way, anyway, of reading the question, to which he's already given us the answer, which is everything right. is nothing. nothing. Yeah. Right. You know, in American culture, or at least the American culture that I exist in, where the well, one of the kind of primary questions is like, what have you contributed in your life? Or mm-hmm. like, you know, have you gotten ahead of the Joneses by what you've accumulated in your life? Like the question of how do we evaluate what mm-hmm. we have done so far? And his answer is... Any way you try to evaluate it in a cumulative fashion, you're going to be you're going to be disappointed. Well, yeah, which I think can be a helpful sort of reorientation. But first, he has to break down that initial, you know, orientation or set of assumptions that we had from Proverbs or, yeah. you know, from that or from American society or whatever, that that we are building up towards something, you know, that we're. We're climbing the ladder where, you know, we want this generation to be in a better position than the last generation. We want, you know. Yeah. And he's saying that none of that is happening. Anything else you want to say about one, one, the three? No, I want to go to eight. Okay. So we're going to move on to eight, <laughs> uh, 16. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how one's eyes see sleep, neither day nor night, then I saw all the work of God that no one can find out what is happening under the sun. However much they may toil in seeking, they will not find it out. Even though those who are wise claim to know, they cannot find it out. Okay, so the the JPS translation is a little bit different. 
But it has the line, we cannot guess the events that occur under the sun. Yeah. Which what I take from that is something like, there's like an inscrutability, right? We cannot learn the system that God has in place. And we certainly can't manipulate it or control the outcomes of the system. Yeah. And so like there's there's no way there's nothing we can do to ensure any particular outcome of anything. Like yeah. things things just happen. Maybe there's a system and maybe there's not. Yeah. But you're you don't ha- we don't have access to that. Yeah. That's a pretty that's that's a hard thing for me to think about. <laughs> yeah, can you say you know? more about that? Yeah. Well, just like that not only the idea that I'm not controlling things, but that I can't even know what the rules of the game are that yeah. I'm playing. Mm-hmm. You know, like there may be systems at play here, but it's it's nothing. You know, you can't you could stay up all day and night, and you're not going to be able to discern the rules of this game that we're all engaged in. Yeah, and that's infuriating. It is very much, and <laughs> he is impl- implicating God in that very clearly. That. You know, when you look around the world and what are the things he's done for the previous eight chapters to say, look, there's righteous people who are suffering and there are wicked people who are prospering. How do we explain that? And one of the ways that he's come up with here is we don't know how God chooses to reward and punish. So Mm -hmm. like you're saying, we don't know what the rules of the game are. So God is playing by some rules, but we don't know what those rules are. Therefore, we don't know how to what to do if we want to prosper or what we will do that will make us suffer. And, you know, in a, especially in a tradition that like seeking out the will of God is like kind of an important tenet in Christian mm-hmm. faith anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to say like, you can't, like God actually isn't going to tell you what you ought to do, <laughs> right? Like that's a pretty like religiously stark thing. And then, then to say like your preacher doesn't know your, you know, PhDs who have a podcast, they don't know, like nobody mm-hmm. knows. Right. You can devote your whole life to intense study trying to discern what it is God wants from us and how we can live a good and righteous life or how we can, you know, make things come out in a positive way. And you can't. Yeah. Like, no, nobody can. Yeah. And the inscrutability of God's systems is not a super satisfying answer. It's not a super satisfying answer, but it keeps its finger on a really kind of persistent question mm-hmm. that we often have theological or philosophical ways of kind of squirming out from under. So we can resolve the question by, by saying, well, God is testing us or God is faces hidden right now, or God is, you know, like there are different ways of getting there to say, we don't want to ask that question. So here's a, here's an easy way of mm-hmm. answering it. And Kohelet is kind of saying, mm, like, le- we need to sit with the question for a little bit. Like, I'm not going to let you weasel out. I'm just going to say, you don't actually know. Mm -hmm. But we've got to sit with this reality that we have. It also makes me think, like, this sort of epic message of, like, stop. Like, you're running a race that's not a race. Like, you are exhausting yourself. You're up day and night trying to do something, and it's the wrong question. You know what I mean? Like, you've got to reorient yourself because you're just, you're banging your head against the wall. That line here in verse 16, when I applied my mind to know wisdom and see the business that is done, how one's eyes, how one's eyes see sleep neither day nor night. That's getting at that issue of restlessness that you're pointing to that we, when we struggle to understand or make sense of what is happening or what, what is our life added up to? Like we wear ourselves out because we can't ever come up with a good answer. Mm -hmm. And if, if we want to 
be peaceful. If we want to rest, we need to ask a different question or stop asking that question mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. So moving to nine one. All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, one does not know. Everything that confronts them is vanity, since the same fate comes to all, to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to those who sacrifice and those who do not sacrifice. As are the good, so are the sinners. Those who swear are like those who shun an oath. This is an evil in all that happens under the sun that the same fate comes to everyone. Moreover, the hearts of all are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. What do you you read going on here in 1 to 3? So, at least the first part of it, verse 1, is that not only can we not understand the systems that are at play in the world, we're not even controlling our own actions. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> can you say a little bit more about how you get there? I think you're right about that, but can well, you say a little more about that? I get there from the JPS translation, which maybe is maybe is flying a little fast and loose, but the nine one in the JPS is for all this I noted and I ascertained all this, that the actions of even the righteous and the wise are determined by God. Mm. Even love, even hate. Man knows none of these in advance. None. Yeah. Which really makes it sound like even the things that you love, you you don't, you don't have any, you're not controlling anything. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's a fair translation? Do you think that's what he's, what he's getting at? That, that's pretty extreme. Yeah, there's an argument among scholars about the extent to which Ecclesiastes is a predeterminist. Yeah. And so do we have any control at all? And I, I mean, I think you can see in the, in the space between the JPS translation and the NRSV translation, one way of reading that is we don't have any control over anything that we love or hate, think or do. Like God is kind of running the show. Mm-hmm. We're the like o- puppets. The other way of reading it is that we do have, like we can make choices, but the outcomes of those choices, we don't have any control over the outcomes. Yeah. And so those, those are sort of shades of the same idea. And I, you know, I think the text itself is open to either of those possibilities. I tend to read Ecclesiastes as mostly saying, you can make some near-term choices about things, but you don't have any control over the long-term consequences. All that's in God's hands. I can get on board with the idea that we don't get to decide what we love and what we hate. Like, yeah. you know, it. Yeah. we just, we sort of respond to it. And you can say that God has decided, or you can say we just are sort of built the way we're built and different people love different things. Or we can't predict what we're going to love or yeah. hate or, you know. I still think it's a little bit different than the actions of the righteous and the wise are determined by God. Yeah. That that goes too far for me, Kohelet. <laughs> yeah, step it back. Yeah, although what you're saying there, and this is like leaning into the, uh, what does this mean for us today? So maybe this is a little out of place, but one of, the, one of the things that you're saying there, like it's making me think about the extent to which what we think about things can be sort of predetermined by the worldview. So like, you know, if I identify as a Democrat or identify as a Republican, there are certain things that seemingly have nothing to do with that. Like, should I wear a face mask during a pandemic or should I not? Mm-hmm. What we actually think about that gets really quickly shaped by the, like, the ideologies we inhabit rather than by what we actually like, might independently think about that. Mm-hmm. And so there really is a sense in which like, what do we love and what do we hate? What do we do and what do we not do? is determined from outside of us. Yeah, yeah. Like that's right. not by God in that, in that right, instance. Right, not by but, God in that instance, but there are forces working on us. Yeah, so the illusion that we're making our own free choices yeah. maybe is one we ought to think more about. Yeah, ooh, that's very interesting. 
especially for the the wildly individualistic yeah. or Americans view themselves as being wildly individualistic. Now, so then Kohel starts to talk about um, the same fate comes to all. And then he goes through this long list, yeah. the righteous, wicked, clean, unclean, those who do mm-hmm. religious observances and those who don't. Yeah, what do you take him to be talking about there? The same fate happens to everyone. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I'm kind of cheating because then in the next verse he tells you, <laughs> yeah. we're all going to the dead. Yeah. Like, we're all, that's everyone's fate. This is the part that's like life sucks and then you die. So when we think about the same fate, he's thinking, I think, both in terms of what happens to you while you're alive. Mm-hmm. So, like, things happen to you, good and bad. You can't really, like, differentiate yourself by what you do or don't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you're going to die. And you're going to die the same way, whether you're righteous or wicked. Yeah. Like you said, we, we can't control. We don't. We're not controlling consequences. Yeah. You can choose your action for their own, for your own reason, whatever that is. But don't think that. Don't think that behaving in a certain way will get you something else. One thing that's worth pointing out just in verse two is that Ecclesiastes includes religious ceremony, both sacrifice and not sacrifice. That is worship and not worship and Mm -hmm. also making and breaking oaths. He's saying those don't matter at all in terms of outcomes. And so it's it's not that people who are religious, you know, things are going to come out well for you if you're religious and they're not if you're not. It's doesn't really make that much difference which way you go. And in fact, in chapter five, he encourages you to actually not be too religious because if you, if you make a vow and break it, God's going to punish you. Whereas if you just never made the vow, God probably wouldn't notice. Yeah. So he's in, kind of discouraging the sort of religious fervor, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay, moving to verse four. But whoever is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, and even the memory of them is lost. Their love and their hate and their envy has already perished. Never again will they have any share in all that happens under the sun. Okay, living dog, better than a dead lion. Go. <laughs> I, okay, I just have to say, I, <laughs> I, I would not count knowledge that I'm going to die as one of the major <laughs> pros of being alive. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad I'm alive so I can ruminate on the fact that I'm going to die. Yeah. Um, that's a weird thing to say. It is. Yeah, absolutely. It's better, mean, to, it's better to know something than to know nothing. And the one thing we can know is that we're going to die and know nothing. That's our low yeah. bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is a low bar. Okay, yeah. but you asked about the dog and the lion. I don't know. Lions are powerful and dogs are less powerful. So this 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 contrast of a lion, sort of the you know the ferocious the kingly grand, beast, and the, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. and you would rather be you would rather be alive, even if it means you're sort of at the most lowly status, than be dead as a king. Because you know you're gonna die. Because you know you're gonna die. Oh <laughs> I just think that's hysterical. Yeah. Oh, Kohelet, you crack me up. You know, Kohelet has no apparent concept of a life after death. Mm-hmm. So he's saying we just have to accept the reality that death is the end of things. Within a generation or two after you die, people are not going to remember that you ever existed. The world is going to go on as though you never were, regardless mm-hmm. of whether you're a king, whether you're a lion, or whether you're a nobody, whether you're a dog. Yeah, that's kind of sad. So now we come to my wedding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. 
So this is the passage that uh, that you read in my wedding. Mm-hmm. And so we're in chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Go, eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has long ago approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Do not let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that are given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sha'ol to which you are going. I do. (laughs) (laughs) So romantic. Yeah. This is where I feel like there's an opportunity to sort of try to reorient in a more positive way. Like, yes, Kohelet has closed the door to the idea that we're building a lasting legacy and that we're progressing towards anything. Like, no, we're not. Yeah. What you get is this this portion, right? Yeah. This this share, chalek. Yeah. And it's really yours. Like you can you should you should use what you've got now. Yeah. Right? Like and and God's okay with all of it. Like stop worrying about following rules that have been articulated somewhere else. But the things that you actually love. Yeah. Lean into those things. Yeah. Don't save them for later. You pointed out that Kohelet uses a different word at the end of, or in the middle of verse nine. That is your portion in life. And you gave the Hebrew chelek, which means share or portion or something like that. This is in contrast, I think, to Yitron prophet that he used in one three, which we were talking about earlier. Mm. And when I was working on my book, I was struggling for like, how do you express what a chelek is? And the best thing, this is not great, but the best thing I came up with is it's like someone hands you a gift card you know, to Starbucks that's going to expire tonight. And mm-hmm. so it has value right now, but it doesn't have value if you hold on to it. So mm-hmm. tomorrow morning when you wake up, the value is going to have been erased. So you need to go and get your Frappuccino <laughs> right now, you know, like. <laughs> Do it now. Don't yeah. think too much about it. Like just enjoy the thing that's been given to you. Because if you put it in your pocket and try to hold on to it for the future, it's not going to be worth anything. But that doesn't mean it's not worth anything now. It actually, it is worth something. It's just not worth something permanent. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that, yeah, what you're saying is right, that Ecclesiastes is trying to reorient us from the question of what is the ultimate value? Like, what is my life added up to? What is the profit of my life? To something like, what value does my life have in this moment? And how can I appreciate and enjoy the value that it has? Do you know that um, the Mary Oliver poem, The Summer Day? I do it not. It has... You probably do. You might just not know it by the title. It has this line in it. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Mm, Yeah. And this section made me think of that question. Yeah. Which actually, the particular way that the question is articulated in the poem, I've always found very anxiety provoking. Like, (laughs) like you only get one, you know, and it's precious and don't mess it up. Yeah. In a way that does make me want to plan carefully and like be careful with how i use my life and i think part of this message is like don't be that careful like (laughs) you don't have to be that careful because you're not controlling things anyway but i think the idea like it's a difference to me between asking someone how will you use your talents versus how will you enjoy your talents yeah you know this is this is what you've got and everyone's got a different set of them and you should enjoy them uh, yeah, I really love that comparison. And I think you're exactly right that this question of like, what is the thing that you're going to do with your life 
is more pressure than Ecclesiastes wants you to feel. He wants you to say, mm -hmm. what is the thing in your life that you value right now and how can you experience the value of it? Um, mm -hmm. How can you enjoy it? And I love yeah. what you said about God has already, that line, God has long ago approved what you do. So whatever it is that you're doing with your life, God's okay with that. So mm -hmm. go and, and do it. I think it's so interesting that, you know, when we read that first Corinthians passage, we talked about love and how it's so important to lean into that, you know, kavana or intention of love yeah. and all that you do. And then it's going to look different for different people. And we just have to accept that. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of the message of this too. Like lean into the things that you love, lean into the things that feel good because those, those are the things that God has given you Yeah, and they're, you know, you can't save them for later. So I, I don't know. It's interesting that, that your wedding passage in a, in a very different way, I think comes at that same, yeah that same thing. When I read this passage, like I tell my students at the end of a semester talking about Ecclesiastes, that this was my wedding passage. And um, they always say, oh, it's really beautiful right up through like 9A, enjoy life with the woman whom you love. And they're like, you should have just stopped <laughs> there. But the passage goes on to say <laughs> all the days of your yeah. vain life or all the days of your ephemeral life yeah. and because you're going to end up in the grave. Yeah. And they say, why, do you, why did you say that part? And I'm like, because... This idea that we were just playing with, like enjoy your life because life is enjoyable, that's too kind of Pollyanna yeah. um, for the reality that we live in. Like we live in the face of the grave. There is an end to things. And if you forget that part, you just end up in this happily ever after fairy tale that doesn't actually exist. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be, I think what Ecclesiastes is saying is, you have to keep in mind the fact that you are mortal and that this, the thing that you're enjoying now is not going to last forever. And so if you forget that part, then the enjoyment becomes this kind of like self-indulgence. But mm -hmm. if you can keep that in mind, like the, the reality of death sort of sharpens the enjoyment of the things in the moment because you know that there will be a time when you can't enjoy things anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you can't, in my mind, you can't pull those two ideas about the shortness, the ephemerality of life and the enjoyment of the moment. You can't pull those apart or you end up with some totally other, less realistic kind of message. I mean, that's really what I love about about Kohelet is just how real it is. Yeah. Like it is really honest in its complexity and yeah. it, the way that it sort of juxtaposes you should enjoy yourself and you should enjoy yourself because you're going to die. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. but like that's but that's true, yeah. you know. So let's lean into that a little bit and just, so we're already starting to talk about like, what does that mean if you push towards like, how do we live this out in contemporary life? What does this mean for us in our communities? So if mm. you were just going to make that connection all the way, what would you say is the takeaway from this passage for you? You know, I told, um, before we started recording this, I told Bobby, I have like an hour of wrap up for this, which <laughs> now obviously like, there's so many, yeah. I, for me, there are so many takeaways from from these texts. But the one that is rising to the top of my list right now comes actually from a book called Being Mortal mm. by Atul Gawande, who's a physician and does a lot of end of life care. And so I heard him on the podcast. I always talk about on being. And he talked about how when when he's talking with someone who has a terminal diagnosis, one of the first questions that he asks them is, what does a good day look like for you? Mm. 
Because if we get to a point where such and such treatment is such that the rest of the days you have are <laughs> like no, none of the things that bring you joy can be in your life anymore. Yeah. Then maybe we need to talk about a different treatment plan. Like we have to orient towards what, what your actual joys mm. and priorities are for yeah. your life. And first of all, when I tried to entertain that question, what does a good day look like? It's a really hard question. Yeah. Like at the end, if I were at the end of my life and someone said, what, what makes it worth going another day? Like, what do you really need? It, it was, a, I don't know. So what, what I came up with birds, I need to hear birds, Bobby. I need to hear huh. birds sing. Like, oh, I don't want to be stuck inside somewhere where I'm like cut off from, from the world. But then I realized how many days I go through my life yeah. without go, going to sit on the porch during, yeah, like I'm always awake when the birds are waking up, but I don't go sit on the porch to listen to them because I could do it tomorrow. Yeah. And so for me, sitting with that question of what, sitting with the, the thought of my own death yeah, and what makes a day good, a, a good day, really for me, it, it, it changes how I'm able to enjoy my days right now when I imagine, in my imaginings, I have many days before, yeah. uh, before I need to be thinking about my own death. But it, I mean, I think you're right. I think it really does bring in, bring a certain stark relief to the whole conversation about what we're doing here anyway. Yeah. But if I don't think about it in terms of my own, in terms of my own death or the end of my life, then I get into like, well, my day should be productive and my day should be, yeah. you know, I have all these shoulds about what my day should be. But if you, but if you imagine that you're at the end of your life, which I think Kohelet's saying, like, we all need to imagine that we're at yeah. the end of our life. Cause maybe you are, who knows? Yeah. I don't know. That's what's rising to the top for me right now. You can take Ecclesiastes in the direction of eat, drink and be merry. Yeah. But what he actually says is, you know, eat your f food eat your bread, drink your wine, and whatever your hand finds to do, do with your might. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's eat, drink, and find the joy in what you do, which is different yeah. in my mind than eat, drink, oh, and be married. so beautiful. Yeah. And, and it's not eat, drink, and find the thing to do that gives you enjoyment. It's eat, drink, and enjoy the things, the thing you do. We sometimes hold out the possibility that there's kind of like one ideal profession or one ideal mm -hmm. relationship or one ideal like mm -hmm. life circumstance that is going to bring you enjoyment. And I think the way I read Ecclesiastes is to say, no, no, that just becomes another one of these things that you pursue night and day and th that keeps you from enjoying your life. Mm -hmm. The point is, enjoy the place that you find yourself. Mm -hmm. Enjoy, do th enjoy the things that you do, not do mm -hmm. the things you enjoy. And I mean, they're like, one can certainly try to do things you enjoy, but if that becomes the focal point, you can spend your life sort of spinning, spinning your Spinning and spinning and sort of looking for what's better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Quickly, one of the other things that I love about this book is its skepticism about God and whether like being worshiping God has any real value. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I say I like that is because it creates space in the biblical canon for a radical skeptic who isn't mm. sure that God is really like, God is real for Ecclesiastes. It's just that God may not be that helpful. <laughs> right? God, God is real, but God's doing God's own thing. Yeah. Like, you can't control things by, act, you know, by worshiping in a certain way. That doesn't yeah. give you points that you can then cash in for your prize at Chuck E. Cheese yeah. or however that works. What I like about that 
as you can, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine where I'm headed, is that if that voice can find space in the biblical canon, then people who have a similar kind of orientation to God mm-hmm. ought to also be able to find space in our religious communities. Mm-hmm. And so sort of radical skepticism is often viewed as like, you know, outside the bounds of proper religious observance. But Ecclesiastes says within the biblical text, like, no, I'm, we, we let this, kind of, this radical skeptic kind of hang around in the biblical canon. So you can let a radical skeptic hang around in your mm-hmm. community too. Mm-hmm. And there are days when I feel like a Kohelet, and I'm glad that I have had religious communities who have let me be that way mm-hmm. and hang around them. Yeah, and similar, similarly, we have Kohelet here who's looking at other biblical texts and being like, uh-uh. Yeah. Like, that's not what I see. Yeah. And I think there has to be space in our communities for people to seriously engage the text, engage the traditions, and then say, "Yeah, I don't see that playing out. Yeah. And that can also be a, an act of faith. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. He's sort of broadsiding the book of Proverbs right here. Totally. <laughs> I mean, I see why the rabbis were very uncomfortable. Yeah. And one response to that is like, hey, you shouldn't be talking that way about the Bible. But the yeah. Bible itself says, the, no, yeah. like, welcome. We, we welcome this like contention. Like you don't have right. to swallow the tradition. Hook, line, yeah. and sinker. You're allowed to question it. Yeah. I love it. Next week, we're looking mostly at the sort of famous poem in chapter three for everything there is a time and a season for everything under the under the sun mm-hmm. and also at then the poem in chapter one about the like the cycles of the seasons and what that has to do with human life so i'm looking forward to that conversation but i have in this moment i have really enjoyed this one <laughs> <laughs> as have i and i hope that we will be granted a wealth of days to get to our next conversation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> me too. All right, Amy, I'll see you next time. Bye. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Bible Worm. Next week, we'll continue our discussion of Ecclesiastes with the famous poem in 3, 1 to 8. For everything, there is a time. Turn, turn, turn. We'll see you then. <laughs>